Welcome to Order Up, the restaurant operations podcast brought to you by Ops Analytica. One thing about when you're managing multi-location uh, operations, whether you're in restaurants or they're medical, banking, legal, you know, chiropractic, gyms, it doesn't matter, um, is that very often when you're delivering services at the location level, um, that there isn't just one lever you can pull to increase sales, right? Uh, to make customers happier, to uh, increase profitability. Oftentimes, it's not one lever, it's 30,000 little levers that all have to be pulled. Not, none of them are going to sink you, but if enough of those levers aren't pulled correctly, your customers will have a bad experience with your business, your customer satisfaction will be down, and your sales and profits will follow. And that's what we do at Ops Analytica. We help you manage pulling all 30,000 little levers right in the right order. And, uh, and then at the same time, we're providing you with data, amazing visibility into uh, what levers aren't getting pulled, where you have issues, so you can figure out what the heck's going on and fix them. And then you move on. And then every time you correct an issue, you make your employees happier, you make it your, their jobs easier, you make your customers happier, and your sales and profits will follow. Check us out at OpsAnalytica.com. Hello there, Order Up Pod Show, Podcast, Pod, Pod Show, what does that mean? Hello there, Order Up Podcast listeners, this is Tommy, your host, and I am happy to be interviewing today Mr. Brett Ireland. How are you doing, sir? I'm well, thanks, Tommy. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're so welcome, man. So uh, as we were just chit-chatting about, uh, the show is always the same. We always ask everybody uh, the same five questions in the same order, and then we just have a great conversation. And uh, so let's get started here. Question number one, uh, explain what you do today, and then take us through your career progression from your first job in the industry. Okay, well, um, at present, so I'm one of the co-founders along with uh, two guys that I grew up with in Jasper, going back to like, you know, elementary school, like the early, early days um, of a group called Bear Hill Brewing. So we've got Jasper Brewing in Jasper where we started, and then we've got one in Banff, Banff Ave Brewing, last best here in Calgary, and where I'm today, and uh, Campio in Edmonton. So uh, that's where we are today, and uh, as I said, I'm the co-founder and CEO, and I guess going back to my early days in the hospitality industry, I um, I started with Earl's back when I was, I think, about 15, if I remember correctly. Um, started in the kitchen, started online apps, and uh, spent a number of years, about three, I think, three, maybe four years in the kitchen, um, you know, doing the, the line, then moving on to the prep team for a bit, and then... Um, yeah, from there, spent a few more years actually out front. So at that point, I'd finished high school and had gone off to university in Edmonton. So I actually took mechanical engineering, um, which is not necessarily the uh, most likely sort of precursor to what I do today. But uh, had I known we were getting into the beer business, I probably would have done at least chemical engineering maybe instead of mechanical. So uh, yeah, so that was basically was uh, did my engineering degree, finished and I was going back and forth to Jasper during the summertime um, with my now wife and working in, in the hospitality sector, of course. And so uh, finished university and myself and a couple friends, uh, we decided to open up a restaurant in Jasper and fast forward 16 years later, um, here we are today. <laughs> wow. So it's so interesting to me because I've been, you know, we've been doing a ton of these interviews recently. It's been a lot of fun. But I've had, in the last two weeks, I've had two guys 
that were automobile mechanical engineers that both own beverage companies. So you are the third mechanical engineer to open up a beverage company. So now we've got tea uh, in London. This guy's a tea guy. I got a coffee guy down in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. And now I have a mechanical engineer in Alberta, Canada doing beer. So <laughs> there you I'm go. Just saying the engineering departments had no idea they were going to be trying to say beverage people. Yeah. <laughs> I would never. World. Yeah, no, no. That's interesting. Huh? No, it's crazy, man. Like that, that doesn't happen. Like three mechanical engineers. I got to hook you three up because I bet you there's a 500 more. You could all start some sort of engineering hospitality group or something. Um, so, okay. So, so is, is that the Earl's like the up sort of like upscale, like kind of like steakhouse? Is that the same Earl's in Canada as it is down here? Yeah, I believe so. They started, they were Western Canadian chain and, uh, yeah, I, I suspect it's absolutely the same same group. Yep. Yeah, do you got it was part of your hiring criteria to get like the most beautiful hostesses and waitresses possible. <laughs> they definitely, yeah, that was a, a that, yeah, I think that was part of their they definitely yeah. didn't shy away from the attraction. This, yeah. <laughs> in Highlands, oh, down here in Colorado, they always call it Earls for Girls. So oh. uh, yeah, so I just was wondering. Um Okay, cool. So you started there in the kitchen, back of the house, dishwasher, making apps, worked your way up to a GM, and then you got you, and then you ended up getting married and also running the restaurants until you started your own. Um, well, you I, had I, your own restaurant. Oh, go on. Sorry, what did Oh, I, I never was the GM. No, I think I think the the where I got to is I think it, maybe Night Leader is the if I if I remember I can't remember exactly sure, but sure. somewhere up in there. And then yeah, I wasn't married at the time. I met my wife there, and then uh, we got married. I think about two years after we started jasper brewing so uh yeah we've been together since 2001 i think yeah so and on. then is do you guys have a restaurant or are you just manufacturing oh, yeah. beer absolutely so when we started our company the the rules the liquor rules in alberta um there was provisions to have a brew pub so you've got a you know full service uh, restaurant with the brewery attached and um that was the model that you could do it or if you wanted to go into the production side and have the wholesale business, it was kind of a different. I just lost you. Oh, here. Sorry. Sorry. Oh, my... there you go. There you go. Sorry. Good. Sorry. I'm not sure it was on my headphones. So I'm not sure <laughs> we got caught. Yeah. So the first um, eight or nine years of our business, we weren't permitted to sell our beer other than in pine glasses in our pub or in growlers that people could take home so directly to consumers so anything through the through the retail wholesale sort of chain wasn't permitted so yeah like if you look at our business today we've got a fairly large wholesale you know packaged beer in the retail market and, and a pretty good well once covid's gone again <laughs> pretty good on-premise yeah. business um and then our restaurants like you know they they see it anywhere from like the the 200 to 360 people, depending on which the four you're looking at. So they're pretty decent sized restaurants for sure. Sure. Okay. So you guys have a series of brew pubs and then you also have a brewing facility. So you're selling beer out of your brew pubs and obviously servicing people with like, you know, restaurant food and whatnot and entertainment. And then you also have a brewery as well where you're brewing your beers for more packaged goods as well. So sending them out all over Canada. 
pretty close. Yeah, the only thing we actually there's actually full breweries in each of the restaurants. So each all four have um, the so they're brewing themselves. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and then we also do yeah, and then we do also do more beer um, at at a at a brewery that's not you know in one of the restaurants, so to speak. So yeah, we're and then I guess the other thing I should add is that we also uh, we also produce spirits. So we. Um, we make a fair bit of whiskey. We did. We've never sold a drop. We just make it, put it in barrels, and uh, let it age. So that's another part of our business. And um, sort of along those same lines, we do produce gins. Um, and we're just actually coming out this summer with our first uh, ready-to-drink um, mixed cocktail in a can. So that's the other part of our our business. I forgot to mention is this, the spirit side. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah. So Colorado, where I live, like they have their own kind of. They've gotten their own rating for bourbon. It's like high mountain bourbon because we had this, this guys, the three guys actually like that out of the story called Stranahan's, and they built like a '94 on the U.S. like whiskey chart or whatever, and like you know they kind of took off, and then they've been since bought by Three Alps. But we have a whole branch of our own sort of high mountain whiskey, right? So you can. Yeah. Like you can't have bourbon and whiskey outside of like Tennessee and Kentucky and all that stuff. So they had to get their own brand of it. So you're doing your own whiskeys and then gin. So my wife's all over that. She has a high juniper, like Tangeray level gin. Okay. Yeah. We've got, we've got some that are super high juniper, some are a bit more on the citrus. The gentleman that runs our distilling program did his master's in Scotland and specifically his thesis was in gin. So he's uh we actually won two gold medals this year for our, uh, the World wow. uh, Gin Awards in the Canadian category. So, yeah, in Colorado, man, yo, I uh, I can't wait till we're allowed to travel again and get back down there. I, um, there's so many great beer and, and spirit manufacturers. I one of the more recent ones we checked out was that Crooked Stave. They got some cool sour stuff going on, and uh, yeah, you guys got a great, great, great industry down there. Yeah, we we're definitely a. Uh, beer and whiskey town now and but we've got yeah we've got some other uh distillers around here that are doing some vodkas and stuff that breck that breck bourbon's good yeah so the one i like actually is out of utah when you're talking about having a pre-mixed spirit in a can there's a high west distillery out of utah which you, you always go utah what because utah is a very uh, large mormon population so it's funny not funny, I guess. It always seems odd that they also have a really good distiller out of Utah. And this guy is making, um, he's making a Manhattan or an old fashioned in a bottle. And I mean, it is just phenomenal. Like, I mean, it's, it's so, it's nice to be able just to pull a couple ice cubes and some of those really nice Luxardo cherries and jump them in a glass and just pour a perfectly mixed Manhattan or old fashioned. Like, I, I definitely enjoy that. I've heard of those guys. You know what? I haven't had any of those uh, pre-mixed ones, but I've definitely heard of the uh, High West group. Yeah, you should definitely check it out, just because they do, they do it. It's a very nice job, and uh, they do a good job. And I mean, they're using. I think they're. I think what's really smart is I believe they're either sourcing all of the like liquor and all the other cherry stuff. And they're either sourcing it themselves or they're distilling it themselves. So it could be like a completely, you know, in-house product, right? Um, doing the orange liqueur or, you know, whatever the ingredient is for whatever right. bottle you're getting. So, so that's super cool. Um, and I'm looking at your website here as well as we're talking. So tell us about what's happening with COVID up in Canada. I know, um, like, what is your occupancy? Can you have anyone in yet? Yeah, we've, so we've had, um, 
two full lockdowns where they they stopped in uh, dine-in service. So we just went to the takeout delivery model. So that's happened twice. Once uh, once in March, and then the second time um, was just before Christmas, late November kind of thing. So, um, yeah, and, and in terms of restrictions for us, um, there was a few points where they did talk about it as 50% capacity, and then there was other ones on top of it. So the the, the actual practical input, uh, or sorry, implication though has been um, relative to the two meter rule. So we have to have all of our seating separated by two two meters. And I don't know of anyone that would um, have had the back what was in place the 50 meter or 50% capacity would have been the limiting factor. The two meter has been the limiting factor. So for us, that's been anywhere for you know getting up in the mid 40s percentage wise um and then as low as you know the mid 30s in terms of the actual seating capacity so that's been challenging we um we have had some you know additional help with some outdoor patio extensions that the municipalities have been permitting and uh yeah it's been building up our takeout and delivery business which was we did a little bit of before but not a lot and uh, i guess the other unique thing for us as a group is because we do operate in Banff and Jasper, which are very much, uh, you know, tourism communities. Um, you know, it's been a bit of a different impact on them, certainly switching to a regional traffic and uh, Banff, which relies heavily on the international market, has definitely felt quite a drop in uh, visitation. So they've, they've been interesting. And then, you know, when I look at our urban properties in Calgary and Edmonton, um, definitely challenged for a whole number of reasons. But uh, Edmonton, especially, we're right near, they built the new hockey arena for the Edmonton Oilers. Um, and we're about two blocks from that. Of course, that's been completely shut in terms of any uh, any fans coming to games and whatnot. So um, really limiting the amount of traffic downtown. So it's been challenging. All that being said, you know, we've got a we're a fairly established group and we've got a, a good sized team um, to put that in context. Like <laughs> when we laid off most of our hourly and um, management level in the first you know, shutdown, I think we were around 340 people that we temporarily laid off. We brought back a decent portion of that, and we're really hopeful that uh, we get back kind of close-ish to normal this summer. Hopefully see the U.S. border open up again. We're hopeful on that. But uh, anyone's guess these days in terms of timelines. Yeah, I mean, it's nuts. I have some other chains up in Canada, and, yeah, they just had to go to delivery too. And But, I, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like the populace of the world is kind of like, yeah, we're kind of done with this, guys, especially as it gets warmer because – you know, when it's warmer, you can open up your doors, get some air blowing through the building. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it, you get your patios going, and it's yeah. like, you know, I mean, you're on a patio. Like, let's the chances of you getting COVID unless someone spits in your mouth and like rubs it in your eyes is going to get less and less, right? So, yeah, and we're really hoping uh, as we're seeing more and more of the vaccines roll out. Like, I mean, the U.S. has done a pretty amazing job there's a big portion of the population there we're not to that extent here yet unfortunately but it's looking like more and more they're getting that high risk portion vaccinated which is super exciting so yeah fingers crossed that we started this suit here been uh yeah it has been just the worst so okay cool we're gonna move on to question number two what is the big project and initiative that you're working on right now Ooh, the big one. Well, we've got a couple on the go. I mean, um, obviously, all the COVID stuff aside, just kind of rebuilding out of that. We're um, we our next big project is looking at uh, launching our whiskey brands that we've been aging for you know seven years, and so with that, we're probably looking to uh, build another facility that'll be a brand anchor for the spirits. So we're just 
working on that. Um, and same time, a few other, like relatively, maybe a little bit minor, more minor. Um, we're doing a renovation to our, two of our Banff. We've got kind of three spaces in Banff. So two of them are going to try and get a renovation done going into the summer. And uh, then uh, I guess in terms of like just pure business wise, it's a matter of continuing to grow our, our wholesale, our, our retail business, which is all of our packaged beer. So we can take our brands and take them out of our four walls. So that's probably the biggest, biggest growth opportunity we're focused on. So I know that's not one, but that's a, uh, there's my answer. Yeah. <laughs> that's a lot. Where are you? Do you have a barrel house or are you? Uh... Yeah, we have everything in a, yeah. And in, in one, one central warehouse where we keep the whiskey. So it's, uh, it's, it's tasting good. I can't wait till we can actually put it in a bottle. I can actually, if, if you want to go off on a tangent on a, a specific whiskey thing if you want yeah i'd love to hear about it we uh we used to actually have another uh location up in fort mcmurray so that's um probably most well known for up near the oil sands and um when they had the big wildfires a couple of years ago we had a pallet of peated malt sitting outside on our patio and so of course the wildfire happened and that was super challenging to say the least for the community so we got back into the facility. Um, we've since exited that location, but going back, I guess over over five years, maybe around five years now, um, we had the malt that was sitting. So peated malt is a smoked malt that used to make uh, a whiskey similar to what you. I mean, you certainly can't call it, it's called Scotch if it's not from Scotland. But to kind of describe the style, um, we'd been making that peated malt whiskey and decided to test the malt to make sure it was still safe, and it was. And so we we brewed and, and distilled a, uh, a heavily peated whiskey using this call it kind of double smoked malt. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it was a lot of fun, but also, you know, um, we wanted to do something that was, you know, supportive of the community and certainly reflecting the fact that, you know, a lot of people lost their homes and all kinds of other horrible things. And so we partnered with the Fort McMurray firefighters association. And so we, uh, through this event and you know we started auctioning off some of these bottles quote unquote that hadn't been made yet but we were making the whiskey put in a barrel and let it sit so we ended up uh you know holding this auction and kind of to say the least we're completely completely surprised by the interest in it. And some of these bottles went for like ten thousand dollars and keep in mind these are these don't like they, it, there was no whiskey in the bottle yet. So yeah, we did that. And uh, so yeah, over the last five, five years, every year um, we've been doing auctions to sell off some more of them. So I think we're close to having most of the bottles sold off. We're not exactly sure how much the yield will be. So um, we yeah, are hoping, I think yeah. this late fall will be put that in market. It's, it would definitely be up there in one of the more expensive whiskeys, I think released in Canada ever. So it's, it's a lot of fun. It's got a big charity component. All the proceeds go back to the firefighters association. So that's, uh, I guess that'll be probably our first actual whiskey that we've produced that goes into market. So excited about that. Wow. I love that's marketing, by the way, double smoked malt. <laughs> it was smoked originally in the proper way. And then it was also smoked by being right next to a raging wildfire. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like there's a lot of pine trees in that part of the country, and um, oh, yeah. there's a lot of pine notes in the smoke flavors. Like when we're doing some of the testing over the last couple of years, just the flavor testing, you can notice these uh, pretty accentuated pine notes, um, spruce and stuff. It, it's really interesting. So I'm really excited to see what it tastes like once it's actually in in bottle and, and all finished off. That's so cool. That is a really really cool thing to do. Yeah, thanks, Oh yeah, no, like I just, you know, I mean, th that's what people forget too about these restaurants is that 
is that we are part of the community and like we can we pitch in and how we can right and like and helping out the firefighters and you know it, i totally you agree know. I, well, you know that's that's a big place of a you go back to the concept of a you know a public house right and it was it was that one place in a community where all the different facets of uh, of the community would come together and you know have some fun talk about politics share ideas and you know, I think um, that's just so important, especially in this world we live in now where there's so much stuff that happens online and is lacking that personal touch or that personal interaction. I, I, uh, I think it's really easy to forget how big of a role, um, you know, socialization in a food and beverage establishment can be for communities and, and just for society. So I, uh, I think there's going to be some time to get back to that, maybe a little, hopefully a little bit more of a realization of the role that plays in communities. Well, and I mean, too, there's such a push right now because of COVID. Everybody, and we, I was talking about this with somebody else the other day, but like, there's such a push to get everything to drive through and carry out. And, you know, and there's going to have, like, you know, and and everybody, like, that's on the fast side of, of the industry is going to smaller locations, less people, more delivery, mm-hmm. more takeout, more curbside. But, like, we're, you know, we're human animals and we want to socialize. And I mean, let's be honest, how many of the people that we, like how many of the people pre, you know, dating apps met in bars, you know, like that's yeah, people yeah. go to like hang out. And like, I hope that we are able to maintain that culture um, because that is, that, that is the fun part of the industry. Part of it is I just want to get this food fast. Cause I got to get the practice or get my kids home or feed everyone for dinner. And that's definitely part of it. And we, we have to be able to, we should all be focusing on how can we service that group of people because they want different stuff, but yeah, getting people back into the bar, doing flights of beers, a sassy waitress or server, you know, <laughs> yeah. game up on the TV, just having a good time. Like that's, yeah, we can't all just live in our houses. Yeah. So no, and it's it's such a part of the fabric, right? Of again of the communities and uh there I mean certainly there's a you know some degree of retraining the consumer and some different expectations. I think you know a lot of people that maybe didn't use Skip or Uber or whatever else or take out, you know, have now seen that as an option. So I hope really hope that that becomes additive to the industry long term as opposed to sure. you know people, but you know, going out, but we'll see, we'll see. Now, let me ask you this, because in the U.S., part of what we did in Colorado, and I, I can't speak for the whole U.S., I only know Colorado, but definitely at the beginning when the restaurant shut down, everyone was freaking out because they realized, holy hell, like a lot of these guys aren't going to come back from this if we don't let them do stuff. So one of the things that they let us do was they allowed the restaurants to sell cocktails, uh, beer or wine, I think even mixed drinks, I'd have to confirm that, out and to go. Were you allowed to do that in Canada or were you already allowed to do that? Same here. It was a it was a change. So we are now. Yes, we can do that now, but we weren't able to do that before. So I think, um, and that was that applied to um, all we call them Class A licenses. So um, it really you know opened a door up for all the restaurateurs. And I, I hope, and I would say to a degree, I think I think I could say I expect that will stay as part of the industry. And yeah. I think yeah. that's really interesting because it, it you know not just in the base business revenue side, but from an experience perspective, it allows uh, restaurateurs to provide. I think a lot more of a rounded experiences people are starting to take out stuff and they'll have it delivered so i think it's great well yeah i mean if you have like a this is an example i mean you guys are obviously in beer and, and soon to be spirits but like yeah you're a mexican place and you got a signature margarita and you mm-hmm. can you can 
put that in a container with like some tape on it and be like, here's your signature margarita. Just put rocks in your cup, pour it on top, put some, you know, like now you can have that entire, you can have that whole experience at home. And that was obviously a, a huge boon for, you know, sales. It helped out a lot. Big time. Yeah. Totally agree. Totally agree. So moving on to question number three, what is one thing in the industry or your business that's keeping you up at night? <sighs> you know, and to a degree, it's subsided more most recently, but there's still fear of more of this. I think the hardest thing has just been watching so many of our team members being laid off temporarily. And, you know, a lot of them aren't at a point in their lives, you know, um, they're just not positioned to weather a lot of this stuff financially. And, you know, I think of myself back in earlier years in the industry and just how social life was and to have that so restricted, like that's been, I think the most challenging thing. Once we got past this sort of crazy shock of the first shutdown in March there and kind of got our heads together and adapted to how we were going to wade through this whole ordeal as a business. Um, yeah, I think the the team and the impact it's had on them is the biggest thing. Because you think about like, you know, we're 16 years in and by and large, a big part of really what we are and where our values is in our culture and our team. And so um, feeling for them and just worrying about how it was going to impact our culture was probably the biggest thing. Again, like we had, there was some rough early, early days back after St. Patty's there last March, um, just thinking about how we're going to adapt from a business perspective. But yeah, uh, there's been a lot of individuals that work in this industry that have been really, 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 really heavy hit from it. Well, I'm down here in the States, and I don't know if this is the same in Canada, but I've been talking to a bunch of people, and they're like, you know, we had labor problems before. And the big problem for labor two years ago, three years ago, was turnover. We're spending a fortune getting these people in here. We're spending a fortune training them, and then they're gone 50 days later. And mm -hmm. now what I'm hearing from people just doing the podcast is, it's not that it's turnover is that we can't find the people because they literally left the industry. Yeah. I, and I, I, I hate to say, but I think a lot of, especially a lot of the really great people that were so additive to, to the industry, I think uh, I've kind of, you know, there, there's, it, it, I think there's been a general sense, you know, amongst some of the peers we, we talked to here of this, there was all this talk of the essential and non-essential businesses and, so yeah. many people talk about how they'd like, well, we're not essential and our industry yeah. isn't essential. I'm not essential. Like, I guess I got to find something else to do here. Like this is, you know, just not valued. And so like, I, I, of course you can take the logical approach to it and certainly we need hospital workers and all that. Like, you know, I, I can understand it, but that was, I think a real sense of a lot of the industry folks was like, well, yeah, I gotta, I gotta get into something else. The world doesn't take us serious here. So well, and, and I also felt like down here, essential and non-essential had a lot to do with how much political weight you had, right? Because there were, you know, like one of the big complaints in the U.S. was, how hey, are strip clubs essential, but churches are not essential? You know what I mean? Like, because mm -hmm. that was in some areas, strip clubs were open. In other areas, you couldn't have more than like 10% of your parishioners in a church as an example of like the extremes. But like, you're like, whoa, okay. Uh, and so it was like, yeah. And like, and you know, too, like I read all those CDC findings, like when that big sort of salacious uh, down here, CDC report came out, I think it was like in September timeframe. I think I wrote a blog on it. So I have to go look. Uh, but like, you know, they were like, well, 
50% of the people who got COVID had been in a restaurant in the last two weeks. But then the number was like, let's just say somewhere between 50 and 70. I don't have the exact number in front of me. Uh, but that number, but all the people who, 50 to 70% of the people who got COVID got it from a family member. So they had like two that didn't seem like they were correlative numbers, right? They had two independent statistics. 50% of the people who got COVID were in restaurants. 70% of the people who got COVID got it from a family member. Well, was the family member in a restaurant? You know, like, what, you know, what's the, like, where does this all connect? It, it just felt like they just had to do something. And so they just said restaurants are an easy, we know people are going to gather and we know this thing spreads that people gather. So let's just, even though we don't have any real data about it necessarily, or let's just stop it, you know? Yeah, I think there's been a lot of frustration in the industry of just this lack of understanding of, okay, so what what is like, we're being told these are all data driven decisions, but where is the actual data? And yeah, yeah that's that, that yeah, led to a lot of frustrations. I think that still continues today. There's still some mis lack of sense of transparency. I don't know if that's actually the case or not, but people are frustrated because they don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's just tough. And I mean, you know, we could sit here and whine all, I'm not whine, complain and gripe and stuff, but realistically, unless you have a strong restaurant association, a national restaurant association that's out there, you know, doing what their job is to do, which is to lobby politicians, you know, and that's the other thing that really killed restaurants was that it all got pushed down to the local guys, you know, and so it made any kind of centralized lobbying effort much harder because in the US, I don't know if it's the same in Canada, but you know, the health departments and it, it goes to the county level, right? So even if you do have a big national thing, they can't disperse their funds across 3,300 counties or whatever you have in the States to, to hammer those guys. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think that's one of the call it biggest opportunities. I don't know about the US market at all really but um in canada i think that's one of the biggest opportunities for that for this industry to get together get more organized as an industry and, and have a, a more unified voice and you know we've got restaurants canada which does a tremendous job but going across the entire country with all the different provincial and jurisdictions and stuff it's you need the local level so um i see huge opportunity there you know not just relative to covid but as the industry as a whole i it's kind of in been looked at as it's you know possible to herd cats kind of mentality and i think it's a <laughs> yeah launching industry that they bring together but oh i really hope that's something that kind of becomes a, an actual outcome of this COVID experience as we get our our industry a bit more organized yeah and i, I would talk to that like so the u.s has got a very decentralized and i'm very much for limited government in general because you know yeah they're just so inefficient here and whatnot. But I, in this case, food safety and restaurant management, I can see a national approach to it. Um, because right now we have 50 states, then we have each state has its own health department, right? For managing mm -hmm. health in that state. And then it goes to the county level. And then you have the FDA and the USDA at the top. And the FDA is kind of what manages more on the restaurant side of things. And they're all like, all they're focusing on really is the supply chain, which I get, but like, you know, you can have in two different counties in a state, a city, like 
Seattle and then outside of Seattle, you could have, in some cases, different standards for food and definitely different standards around food safety, spirits, sugar, all of these different aspects that go around food can be changing county by county, state by state, based off of where they're at. And the FDA basically puts out this thing called the food code. And then they say, okay, here's the food code, adopt what you want. And, and it's like, it, I think the industry would actually benefit from some amount of, you know, stability and just like, hey, this is the standard. It's 135. Okay. We're all on 135. That's what we're doing, you know, or whatever it ends up being. Like, it's just, yeah, some consistent. Yeah. 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 I, uh, yeah, I really, I really do. I hope that's one of the uh, sort of some banding together mentality coming out of this that the industry, and you know, it ultimately leads to, I think, some better sophistication. I think it's better for the consumer's perception too, right? Like it's just, it's all around yeah. additive. Yeah. I hope so. I yeah. hope so. We see that. And then one centralized, these are the standards that we're all going to follow for food safety because it's a federal thing. Now, it, that could be worse because in some case, and now you, I can make the converse case here, which I will do. It's my podcast, which <laughs> is that, you know, right now, Texas and Florida and the U.S., two of the biggest states, two of the most conservative states, they, I mean, I think, I don't even remember when Florida did this, but Florida might have been like six plus months ago. Uh, Governor DeSantis just said, we're done. We're not locking it down anymore. Masks off. We're open for business. Come down to Florida, party it up. And then Texas did the same thing, maybe a couple months later, within a month or two later. They're like, we're done. No more lockdowns. Our numbers are steady. We're not seeing this huge health crisis anymore. We're through the thick of it. And if you did have a national plan, those two states would be locked down. And, you know, we have states like California and New York and some of these other states that are so overly locked down. And then you've got other states like Florida and Texas that are so open. So I guess I could make a conservative, I could make a alternative case, which is let the states decide. So now I've, I've just talked myself into a confusing well, you know, thing. You know, <laughs> and ultimately, you know, as a local restaurant too, like are you going to have any input or any influence on like, if it's unified across the whole, uh, that's a great, that's yeah, great. Great set of counterpoints and counterpoints. I, yeah. 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 I don't know. I mean, it's not, this has been hard, but you know, what's interesting is that the Asian countries dealt with this with swine flu H1N1 or whatever that was like back in 2008, 2009. That's when they learned how to contact trace. That's when they learned about masks. That's when they learned how to do shutdowns like in, in testing and all that stuff. And we didn't really go through that because we didn't have to really deal with it because it kind of got figured out before it really impacted the US and Canada, North America, we should say, right? And I think a lot yeah. of Europe didn't get super impacted with that as bad either. And so now this COVID was our H1N1. We've now learned what's good and bad, right? And so hopefully the next time this happens, which it will happen hopefully anytime soon, but you know, in the future, we hopefully have a least understanding of what we need and how to do it better, right? And hopefully there will be some nice commissions after this is kind of we get through the summer and hopefully the vaccines are out where they can look at this and go, this is where we kicked ass. This is where we stunk. Let's figure out how we can fix the things that we stunk at, right? Because a lot of people's lives, they get destroyed by this whole thing. I mean, obviously getting not, uh, 
apart from being sick and, or and dying, but just you know, people who weren't affected by that say the virus, but were affected by the economic impacts. Yeah, totally. So. I sure hope, and I do agree. I think it's fair to say. I think there's some expectations that there's some really meaningful learnings from this. This, yeah, uh, yeah, I, yeah my but but it's up to guys like me and you to pressure people to do that because if you go right back into hey, I got this whiskey out, and you don't sit there and, and hammer your politicians on this, you know, then you know it'll just they'll just all have to figure it out again thirty years from now. Hopefully. Yeah, <laughs> those dialogues have to take place, right? Kind of while it's fresh and coming out of it. That uh, I, I hope that happens, and I, I think there'll be well, yeah. some people that hopefully push on that. So, absolutely. Okay, we're moving on to the next question. Uh, what is the one thing that you thought the industry would be doing right now that it isn't? And that could be brewing or restaurants. I'm I'm good with either. Well, I think a, a much easier question would be on the. Uh, the brewing side, I, I've been surprised. I think it's fair to say to see this slow uptake, and I know it's partly because we're you know within a regulatory environment, but I've been surprised with the slow uptake of direct consumer like online transactions that take place in the alcohol beverage space. I think we lag you know way behind um, the, the general trend you know for, for the retail sector, and I think. That's been a bit of a surprise. I mean, there's obvious reasons to think about that in terms of people wanting to to feel and touch and see those products. And maybe you know to a degree, but it's um, that's a surprise to me. Beer beer is a little more challenging because it's you know just in volume, weight, size, that kind of thing. It's not the easiest thing to move around. But uh, I think we'll see more and more. We've seen lots of it in wine and some in spirits. So I think we'll see a trend in that direction. But I would expect it to be further along. That'd be mine. My thought. Well, and I mean, realistically, like you can verify somebody's age. You can take a, they can take a picture of their license, you know, like there, there are ways to verify people's ages. You do it all the time for transactions online, airplane tickets, you know, a 14 year old can't buy airplane tickets. Yeah, probably I would assume like, uh, I've never tried actually, but you know, so it seems to me that, you know, I get that some of these blue, like they call them blue laws in the U.S., which were religious-based laws that stop people from selling alcohol, for instance, on Sunday. Or and like still, even in Texas and like Louisiana, where we'll go visit some family sometimes, there's still dry counties in those areas, you know, where they just don't allow alcohol, which is fine. But in general, like we should just be able to buy stuff online. Like it just seems stupid that you can buy everything else online and not get like a bottle of whiskey, you know? Yeah. I, uh, I, <laughs> yeah, there's, I think there's a lot of opportunity for that stuff to, to evolve. Cause I think the consumer is going to want it. And it's going to be really important for uh, businesses um, to adapt to. Yeah. I mean, one of the nice things that we had in our area was like we had a neighborhood Facebook page. And so when COVID hit, this guy who lived in the neighborhood who owned a liquor store, he was like, guys, just chat me through Messenger. Tell me what you want. I'll bring you up at the store and I'll deliver it to your house when I come home. And it was like such a nice thing when we were all locked down to be able to get like, you know, a bottle of wine or something just to, you know. Uh, have a nice cocktail while you were stuck in your house type of thing. And, and so it's just like, that's just the wave of the future. Like you should just be able to have like stuff delivered. I'm sorry. Like it, you're not, you can't peel it back now with the cats out of the bag. So let's just allow people to do that and like come up with clever ways to do it. 
I mean, you know, like you could tell like all these other beverage guys, the tea guy and the coffee guy that I talked to that were both mechanical engineers. Those guys are both doing subscription services. So yeah. wouldn't it be nice if you could just ship off, you know, a case of beer once, you know, if that's once a day, then you're probably not doing right by society, but you know, once a week, maybe. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the guy is like subscribing to two cases a day. You're like, holy hell, man, what are you doing over there? But, you know. <laughs> oh man, I, I you just I think that's nail on the head in terms of one of, one of the big opportunities is the subscription side. We've actually been exploring what uh, what kind of opportunities we might be able to find for ourselves in that realm. So um, yeah, I couldn't agree more. There's opportunity there for sure. When I have some buddies here that do wine, they do wine and they get whiskey shipped around here, but I don't know that it's like, I don't know how it's actually happening because they're like subscribing to, they do like services. I don't know. Like my buddy has like a gigantic wine cellar in his house and he, you know, he's getting tons of it over the internet, but maybe it's a broker sitch. I don't know how it's all working, but yeah, I just, it would be nice, you know, to just yeah. Have, so, that's one of the one of the hurdles, right? Like you come up with the great ideas, but how do you facilitate that? And you know, do you build your own app? Or and, uh, yeah, but I, yeah, I, I really do think the opportunities there. So, yeah. could you send beer through Uber Eats if that's a, a delivery service in your town to with like a hamburger to a customer? Or could you just send like yep. a six pack of beer through Uber Eats to a customer? Yeah, we are allowed there. It kind of my understanding is. Um, their license as well. And so there's an onus on them to check the age verification. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So yes, yes, we, yeah, we can do that. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. Okay. So, okay. We've gone through four questions. It's now my favorite question time. It's the war story question. <laughs> Give me a war story. I want to hear something crazy. Something that you can't believe happened. <laughs> I'm crazy. Well, um, yeah, we've, We've certainly done a lot of dumb things over the years. So if we were having a beer, I could probably tell you half a dozen or more. You know what? Probably the easiest, the funner one of the funner ones to tell is uh, the story of how we ended up building the brewery in Banff. Um, so we at the time just had the operation in Jasper, and we kind of started to get our stuff figured out, had our cogs in order, and labor and stuff, yeah. which is always a battle, right? And so about three years in, and this opportunity in Banff arose, and. Banff's a really challenging place to find um, real estate to to open up a restaurant, and you know it's, it's a it's a great market to be in, especially when you know the borders are open, all that kind of stuff. But it, it can be really challenging to get into, and so um, one of our now business partners who had been from Jasper was uh, he owns and operates a hotel in Banff, and so he brought this opportunity to us. So we decided to explore it further, and we bought uh, as we have in all but uh, one of our five breweries um, bought some stuff secondhand and so the location we're at in Banff is in the second floor of a um, essentially kind of a, a mall not a big mall but kind of a mall right on Banff Avenue and so uh, the landlord owns and operates some retail stuff on the main floor and we bought this brewery before we signed the lease we hired an engineering firm to do an assessment on the building because uh, we obviously had some concerns around the capacity to Wait. yeah exactly right. okay so <laughs> So we buy the brewery, we get the engineering drawings done, they they, they agree, or they, they stamp them and say, yeah, there's, uh, I shouldn't say agree, but yeah, they, they provide their stamp drawings saying, yeah, you're good to go to put this brewery in. So we cut open the back of the building and we move all this equipment in and, you know, we're starting construction demo of the restaurant space and the landlord comes up and is looking at the tanks and it's like, cheapers, those things are, those are big tanks. And so... Um, 
he phones the engineering firm. And so they come in the next morning and have a look around and they're, uh, they were, let's just say a bit surprised to actually see the tanks in person and the size of them. And, you know, in the brewing space, these are relatively very small. They're not quite maybe on the nano scale, but they're very much on the micro scale. So uh, long story short, turns out, I think it was the day after. So we ended up talking with the engineers again and, uh, here we are way past the point of no return starting demolition and into construction. And what had happened is that when they did the math, they had uh, done it on the way to the tanks without the beer inside of them. So it, uh, <laughs> so yeah, so that was a bit of a challenge. So that uh, increased our budget. We were thankfully the, you know, the vertical um, capacity of the, 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 the building, um, the posts and everything were, were had the capacity to take on additional infrastructure and so we were able to build this big um iron sort of secondary floor and anchor it and put all the tanks in it all worked out but oh my gosh that was a a gong show because it added a lot of cost and some time and um i don't know you know if we would have done it you know signed the lease and moved forward with it had we known that maybe out of the gate so it was uh it was it was quite a time but you know looking back i mean obviously the most important thing is thankfully nothing happened no tanks went through floors or anything like that, um, which is the most important thing. Nobody got hurt, but uh, you know, it also it turned out to be you know it's a great business. We built a, an awesome business there, built big brand, a great brand, and um, you know we've been able to find our way of you know being part of that community, which has just been wonderful. So, but it was uh, yeah, those are challenging days when that that whole thing was going down. Well, and it's because you go, we did everything right. You know, we just didn't like eyeball it and go, hey, man, we could put these tanks in and they'll fit fine. You like hired an engineering firm, right? So then their job is to like, you know, think it through. Like, that's why you hire an engineering firm. And it just goes to show you that, and this this kind of plays into my, what my business is, is that there are, the devil's always in the details, right? And like, and that's where like checklists are so important for operating just any type of business, whether it's restaurants, retail, medical, doesn't matter because even the smartest guy, the, the, the structural engineer, he missed something. And it was actually kind of a big thing, right? Because it's like a gallon's eight pounds, something like that. So I don't, you know, I'm sure you guys are doing it in like liters and stuff, but that's not, that's a significant amount of weight. You know, a thousand gallon tank is a, 8,000 more pounds of uh, weights coming in that thing. Yeah, that's, I don't know, I don't know the ratio exactly, but I, I would bet it's somewhere about 20% of them it is steel and 80% is, uh, is liquid. So yeah, it's a pretty, uh, pretty big, pretty big variable, but yeah. you know, yeah. what so, and uh, thankful that it did. And, oh, but yeah, communication, right. It's uh, and just human beings we make mistakes. Well, and also the real thing is it just comes down to is that the average human being can only keep four things in their head at any given time. So, and if they miss any of them, depending on how the process is, it can be catastrophic. So, you know, so it's just in general, like you need that double check process. Uh, you need some, you need some reference on everything you do so that you can make sure that you just don't miss something because and this is especially true like in a restaurant, right? Like you ran as restaurants, you know, like, you know, yeah, I got to go check to make sure we're all ready to go for the guests. But then you get interrupted 65 times. Hey, how much are we supposed to do that? Is there a party? Can I have your keys? Hey, this delivery guy's here. Hey, the repair guy's here. Hey, Bob, no call, no show. You know, 
and you're trying to get through like a 20 item list of things that you just need to do to make sure the restaurant's ready to go. But literally every eight seconds, somebody's pulling on your, your coattail going, Hey, I need your help. It's like having a toddler, you know, and like you can't ever like think through any thought to completion because there's always somebody asking you for something. Hey, do you have your keys now? Bill's got it. You know, like, and all of a sudden, like, of course nothing gets done. You know, like it's impossible for a human being to focus through that. It's, it just, we can't do it. So it is, uh, that's why any kind of reference list is like so important to business. Um, do you want to, do you want to plug anything, Brett? Your website, your merch, your new whiskey launches, anything? Your, uh, oh, what do you want? Well, I mean, just if anyone's in, uh, any of our markets, Calgary, Bound, Jasper, Edmonton, come check us out. We're just uh, love having you in, and uh, we love more than anything if you got some feedback, whether good or bad, on our products. That's probably the most important thing to our business because we uh, we make products, we make beers and spirits, and based on what people say, enjoying them in our experience centers, we uh, we scale some of them. So that's uh, that'd be my plug. Yeah, yeah. So go drink some of his beer and his liquor, and then tell him what you liked and you didn't like. That's that's what he wants. Uh, well, <laughs> Brett, it was a pleasure meeting you today. And uh, and thank you for coming on the podcast. And thank you guys to the Order Up Show podcast listeners. I'm looking at the stats on the shows and they're going up. And I love it. And thank you guys for being such loyal listeners. Brett, take care, sir. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. Bye, guys. <laughs>